So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open in prayer for our time together in John chapter 11. So let me do that right now. Father, I thank you that you are our Lord. You're our God. We receive life from you, Jesus. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. And as we approach our Father through your word, in Jesus' name, give us a glimpse of who you are, God. Unveil Jesus Christ even more tonight that we would love him more, that we would passionately pursue him more, that, Father, that we would run this race with perseverance that's marked out before us. And that, Father, we would not become weary and the Lord, I just ask any gathered here tonight, as we spend time in worship and now in the word, take that wearied soul and lead them behind, beside the green pastures and the still waters and restore their soul, God. So Father, right now, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. So there was a time when I was in seminary, I was actually very close to graduating, and we just the finances were dwindling down more and more. Now, I had made a promise to my wife, and I'm kind of like an adventurous type of guy, and I can take things down to the, to the very end financially, but my wife, no way, you can't do that. And so I get that. And so I told her, I said, look, I am not going to allow our finances to dip below $1,000. Which for some people, that's scary low. And for others, it's like, man, I wish I had that in my account, right? But I had, I, in, in ministering to my wife, I, I, I made that promise to her. Well, things were getting, th- I could see the needle dipping lower and lower. And then I, since, I had a lawn, since I had a lawn business, my John Deere tractor It was either the engine or the transmission. One of those went out, and it was big bucks to replace that. And it brought us down to that $1,000 mark. And it was like, okay, God, all I need right now is just a little bit of tipping over the edge, and I'm done with school. And I'm ready to graduate. But I made a promise to my wife, and I'm going to keep that promise. And so, God, what are you going to do? Because I'm seeing this needle. It's not not going higher and higher each month because I'm going to school and the goal was to draw from savings. And so, Lord, you need to step in and you need to do something. And that honestly was a fear. Did, Did my schooling end or was my schooling about to end with this event? Now, I'm going to share the end of the story a little bit later on in the message, but it felt like it was final. And church, tragedy or hard, hard times can feel that way because this would have been death to a vision. It wouldn't have been the first time that I struggled, God, do you want me to continue school or not? And I truly believe that he did. But church, we can find ourselves in a difficult even tragic situation and feel, no, what? Nope, this is it. This is final because that's how tragedy feels. Can I ask you, are your hopes for an abundant life? Which is what we're talking about as we go through this entire series in the book of John, the abundant life. Does it feel as if the abundant life is ending in this tragedy that you're facing today? Because tragedy feels 
final. Jesus promised, though, you abundant life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one of his sheep, he has promised to take you in and out of this gate and find pasture, the, green, the still waters, the, the green pastures to restore your soul. The abundant life isn't about finances. Finances are simply a means to an end. The end is what we will be held accountable for at the end of the age. How did you spend your life? What did you do? God is excited to see your life unfold. How did you bear up under these tragedies? Because tragedies are a part of us finding this pasture. Tragedies are a part of us embracing the abundance of this life that God gives us. So today's story brings home this question, does tragedy and struggle and heartache end in failure? Does it, do, do, do we lose hope and does it bring death? What happens when tragedy ends in death, either physical death or death to a desire and a dream that maybe we've been working for for years and years? So follow with me as we continue on our study in the abundant life with John 11. We're going to read the first 47 verses. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going for a ride right now. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That we find actually in the next chapter. John's kind of preparing us for it right here. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. I want you to remember that, church. That was Jesus' promise. This sickness will not end in what? Death. No. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and his, her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where... Excuse me, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. Do you remember that in chapter 10? They, were, they picked up stones that were ready to stone him. Look at verse 31 and 33, chapter 10. And yet you want to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not... 12 hours of daylight, a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. He's talking about the natural. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Hmm. His Lazarus, excuse me, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, can you just feel uh, on his arrival? Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Literally, verse 19 reads, and many of the Jews, just so you know, who are the Jews, those were those who posited themselves as enemies of Jesus. Okay. Interesting. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So Jesus is still outside the village. Mary goes, Martha goes to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. <clears throat> yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. It's like Jesus is waiting. When the Jews, the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you, that's in the plural, where have you all laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, church, therefore, many of the Jews 
came, who came to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. See, this is the first time we, we find this, that they're actually now putting their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm not going to discuss that meeting of the Sanhedrin. But church, this is perhaps, in the book of John, the greatest miracle apart from Jesus' resurrection during Passion Week that we have yet to read. The blind man was a huge miracle, and it is even referred to in this story. The Jews talk about it. But this one right here even eclipses the healing of the man born blind. Jesus does this miracle sometime between the feast of Han excuse me, the feast of dedication, which is Hanukkah, generally in the early portion of December, and Passover four months later. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are friends of Jesus, and John goes out of his way, not just to say they're friends, but he loved them. Now, I don't know if he grew up with them. If that's the case, then they're probably generally about the same age as Jesus in their 30s or so, somewhere around there. But we don't know. Jesus does know where they live. They live in Bethany. That's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, so you would come to Bethany, and then you, you would leave Bethany, go up and over the Mount of Olives to go into Jerusalem, which would be on the next mountain over. Bethany is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, just on the east side. They send word to Jesus. Jesus, if you look in verse 7, he says, come let us go to Judea. So Jesus is not in Judea. Where is he? More than likely, he is in Galilee. Probably went back to Capernaum. And so that's about a day or two journey. Someone goes to tell him, hey, Lazarus is sick. You know, the guy who's like one of your besties. Your, your close friends. The one you love. He's sick now. Jesus. Jesus makes a declaration here. I want you to see this in verse 4. He makes this promise. Very prophetic, but very profound. And he says this, this sickness will not end in death. Church, did, did Lazarus die? Yes, he did. Did, did. did Jesus contradict himself? Did Jesus, did, did, was it a fast one? Did this come unexpectedly? The truth is, Jesus waited two more days. What? Jesus, like, come on, you got to hurry and get down there so you can heal him. You heal the man born blind. You can certainly heal this sickness. But Jesus waits two more days. Two more days. He says this sickness will not end in death. But Lazarus died. But it's not going to end in death. Actually, this happened so that God would receive glory and that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. Verse 46, who believed in Jesus? Church, the Jews, his enemies. This is one of those events that Jesus, prop, that Jesus um, plans, purposely plans, 
waiting these two days, even tells his disciples, you know, I'm so glad that I wasn't there when he was sick because now, paraphrasing, you're going to see something that will blow your socks off. Now, Jesus had healed the young man from Nain. His mother was a widow. He was the only son, the only one who could provide. As the coffin is coming out of the village, Jesus reaches up, touches the coffin. The man sits up, and he's raised from the dead. The damsel is 12 years of age. Uh, Jairus' daughter, she is raised from the dead as well. This then, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, sometime between Passover and four months before, somewhere in there, Jesus performs yet one more resurrection. This one, though, is more spectacular than all of them. We're going to find out why in just a moment. This raising of the dead is going to bring glory to God. Jesus permitted him to die just so that he could raise him from the dead. Church, I just want you to know that whatever tragedy, whatever struggle, whatever heartache you're facing, there are times in which Jesus steps in and he heals the blind man. But there are, and he could have done this with Lazarus, but he said, no, I need this. I need this sickness to come, not end, but come to the point of death. And Jesus, there are times in which he allows your situation to come to a head but that head is tragic. That head is heartache. That head is hard. And if it's not physical death, it is death inside of your heart. And you can feel it and the aching of it. And Jesus permits this only because he has something so much better. And that better is what he calls the abundant life. Church, Jesus has to take, take us through the tragedy. He has to. And there are times in which I'm going to put it this way. He permits like the worst possible scenario. And you're like, God, if you had only been, if you had just answered my prayer. But now look where the situation is at. It is beyond hope. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that your situation was beyond hope? Maybe for you it was beyond your hope. But it is never, church, never beyond God's hope. Never beyond his outstretched hand. He can remedy every situation that you're facing. He waited two days. He allowed Lazarus to die. But if he goes there... His disciples, they're right. They're waiting to kill you. Now, I don't know if it was a few weeks or a few months before Passover, but that's exactly what they did. They did kill Jesus. This event became so popular with such power. People coming to Jesus Christ and believing in him just because of this resurrection. More on that later. This is dangerous. And in the face of danger, I just love this. You know, I'm, I'm always wondering about when I'm reading the Gospels, why does this Gospel writer include this little detail and others don't? But G Tom, excuse me, John talks about Thomas' response. 
And, you know, for many of us in our generation, when you think of Thomas, what words come to your mind? Doubting Thomas. That's what he's known for. I want Thomas to be known for being audacious Thomas, bold, lion-hearted Thomas, because that's who he really was. He wasn't a doubting Thomas, though he did doubt. That, unfortunately, in our day, and that's not the way I, he's, he's always been known. So John, he realizes that he is going to pen those words that jo- that. Thomas expresses this doubt. But even when he doubts, Jesus invites him. He says, come, put your hands in, the, in my nail-scarred hands. Put, thrust your hand into my side. And Thomas says, in essence, I don't need to do that. And his confession is perhaps the most outstanding confession because no one ever at that point called Jesus God. But he did. My Lord and my God. He wasn't looking at Jesus and saying, my Lord and my God. No, he looked at Jesus, John says, as my Lord and my God. Whoa, Thomas, you're going over the top with this one. Is Jesus really God? Notice this, that the the, the phrase, the Lord, never comes out of people's lips until after the resurrection. Unless the evangelist who's writing after the resurrection in narrating calls Jesus the Lord, but no one calls Jesus the Lord. After his resurrection, it's like they got it. He's God. He's Yahweh come in the flesh, John 1. Anyway, this Thomas says, let's just go to him. We'll die with him. Man, all right. Ah, Thomas, yes. Because Thomas was a faithful servant. He was a follower of Jesus. Church, I want want to ask you, when you're going through your tragedy, when you're going through the struggle, and I realize this tragedy wasn't striking Thomas like it struck Lazarus's two sisters. I get that. But it's here, and I want to ask you, in the midst of your tragedy, is this how you feel? Come, Jesus. Lead the way. I'll die with you. Or do we tend to shrink back? Oh, goodness. Yeah, if I follow Jesus... It's just going to end in another tragedy. I'm not sure I want to do that. Church, in the midst of our greatest struggle, is where we need to take a hold of Thomas's declaration. Let's go with him and let's die with him. Not necessarily that you will die, though some of us in our hearts, we still need to do more of that, don't we? We need to die more. The truth, though, is Thomas, in this potentially dangerous situation, rises up. Come, let's go with him. So what do they do? Church, they go with him. They go with him. Jesus waits two days. In verse 17, let me just make sure I'm on track here. Jesus goes to him. And we're told in verse 17 that he has been dead for four days. I want you to notice something. Three times in this chapter, people wonder, why didn't Jesus get there sooner? The first one is Martha. Jesus, if he'd only been here sooner, he wouldn't have died. Mary, Jesus, if you'd only been here, you could have healed him. And now the Jews... Some of them said after Jesus wept, look how much he cared for him. And others said, you think he cares for him? If he had just been here sooner, 
He healed the blind man. Couldn't he heal Lazarus' sickness? What's up with this? And the Jews are divided yet again. Three times they're wondering if Jesus had only gotten here sooner, why does Jesus wait two days? In Jesus' defense, not that he needs it, if he had gotten there as soon as he heard word, if Lazarus was dead four days and Jesus waited two, how many days would Lazarus have been dead? Yeah, two days. He still would have been dead. Now, there may be some, something to what we have discovered, and that is during the days of Jesus, about that time, the Jews believed that when someone died, their spirit would stay close to the body for about three days. After three days, that was it. They were gone. They went on to be with the Lord. So Jesus chose not to get there after two days of, Jesus, of Lazarus being dead, but he chose to get there how many? Four days. Not only was he dead, but he was doubly dead. There's no way that he can raise him from the dead. His spirit's gone. Okay, have a great life. I'll see you later type of dead, gone. But Jesus is like, no. Mm -mm. Church, when you're facing hardship and struggle, there are times in which God will wait to intervene just so that not only is there death, but double death. Double death to a vision. Double death to this hardship, and it's like, what? And we pray, and something worse happens. It's like, God, I thought you were on my side. Double death. No way this can be, he can be raised from the dead. Oh, we'll, we'll have to see about that. We'll have to see about that. You see, church, Jesus doesn't just give life. He is life. Do you need a remedy in your situation? Guess who you need? You don't just need an answer to prayer. You need Jesus in that situation. You need Jesus at the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And you need Jesus not just creating life in Genesis 1. You need the, the, the God who is life entering into your situation you need the god who is life entering into your spiritually dead soul to make you alive to regenerate you to bring you and raise you to life in christ if you're dead in your sins today that's the god that you need you don't need just someone who can work miracles you need not just the author of life but you need the very god who is life and if he is life, do you not think he can give you abundant life? Yes. If there's anyone who can do it, any prophet, anyone who ever lived Old Testament and New Testament since the beginning of creation, if you need someone to impart to you the abundant life, it would be Jesus, who is life. He is the resurrection and the life. That is the truth. There's not a whole lot of red in chapter 11, just so you know. There's just not. It's not a sermon, it's a story, and Jesus is very sparing, or at least John very sparingly shares whatever Jesus says. It's just like little nuggets of truth, and here's one of them. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
you need to take that one to the market. You know, we, get, we can get so distracted with this idea of, well, I want the abundant life. I just want the abundant life. And half of us, I, th I think half of the, the, the kingdom of God, we really don't understand what this abundant life is. We think because we got this really cool Chevy Corvette, which sells for however many tens of thousands, if not over $100,000, and some of them, yes, well over 100000 Man, that's it now. I've got, that's the abundant life. And God looks at it and he has to laugh. It's like you. It's, well, it's like my dad when I was so intrigued with my Matchbox Stingray Corvette. That was like so awesome. And I would take him and I would run him down the banners and he would slide and crash, but it was always okay. I liked Hot Wheels, but Hot Wheels were a little bit more expensive, but I love the Hot Wheels wheels. You know how that, anyway, I digress. The, 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 the Matchbox Corvette, the Stingray Corvette, that was like my favorite car. I loved it. I, I, I would sleep with it. I, I think I would even put it under my pillow, just checking, okay, it's there, it's there. No one's going to steal it. My brothers aren't going to take it from me and hold it ransom. I, I protected that little Matchbox Corvette, that Stingray Matchbox Corvette. And I can only imagine there were times in which my dad would just have to chuckle. I mean, how much did that thing cost? A few dollars, that's it. But it was like, at that age, that was my life. You know, for some people, God has to laugh because we so cherish our $100,000 cars. And he laughs and he says, you truly have no clue what abundant life is. Now, I'm not opposed to you owning a Corvette, okay? You just have to let me ride it one time. I'm not opposed to that. That's between you and the Lord and how you choose to spend your money. But is it abundant life? Is it even a taste of the abundant life? Church, it has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with the abundant life. It just doesn't. It is a toy matchbox Corvette in the eyes of God. So I think we, we can get caught up in this idea of abundant life, but we miss it. The abundant life is rich. It's deep. But there's heartache in it. There's heartache in it. There's heartache here, church. It's all over in these verses. Look at it. Martha comes to Jesus. Jesus is waiting just outside the village. Why would he wait? Let me just tell you why he waits. Just kind of piecing some of these verses together. He talks to Martha. If you had only been here, Jesus, then... Bup, 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 and Jesus... Doesn't say anything, at least it's recorded. So she goes back. Apparently, Jesus says, Hey, can I speak with Mary? I mean, all he tells her is that your brother will rise again and that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Then Mary, Martha goes back and tells Mary, and Mary comes, and Jesus is waiting. He's right there. His intention is not to go into the village to minister to and comfort Mary. Not there in her home. See, that's where the Jews are. They're comforting her. And she hears about it. She immediately gets up, makes a beeline to where he, she's told Jesus is. And the Jews, understand, the Jews think that she's going to the tomb. What does that tell you about the location of the tomb? It's very close to where Jesus is. 
Jesus is waiting outside the village because his intention isn't to go to Mary, but for Mary to come to him so Jesus can now go to the tomb. It's all about the tomb. It's all about the tomb. And so Martha, excuse me, Mary comes to him. The Jews need to witness this. I can only imagine that Martha is somewhere in the mix, though it doesn't say that. That's a supposition. I do believe that Martha witnessed the resurrection of her, of her brother. It just doesn't say that in this context, but I think, I think that's what happened. So the Jews, the enemies of Jesus, who are now, in the last few chapters, they're being divided more and more by what Jesus says and does, they come. And in the Greek, it says that, that Martha, excuse me, that Mary was weeping. And the Greek word for weeping here is like a loud, convulsive type of weeping. She's weeping out loud. And it's beginning to stir Jesus' spirit. There's a word that's translated here, deeply moved. Now, he's deeply moved in spirit. This Greek word... Means, let me just find it here. I'm sorry, give me one moment. Here we go. Okay. This, this Greek word means to scold, to speak against sternly, and perhaps even with anger, which is what the, the root of this word means actually means to snort in anger <clears throat> like that but jesus does that in his spirit what as my mama would say incarnation is going on in jesus the, he, he's not just deeply moved it's like there's an anger it's just the sternness that's rising up within him like mm. Is he angry at Martha, Mary? Is he angry at the Jews? No. Jesus uses this, excuse me, Matthew uses this word after Jesus heals two blind men. And it says, and he sternly challenged them. Same Greek word, sternly challenged them. Don't tell anyone. It's like, hey, guys, I'm really serious about this. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Got it? That's the impression that this word conveys. Don't tell anyone. Okay, Jesus, no problem. They go out and they tell everybody. And so Jesus, he can't go publicly because of this. Hello? So there's something going on in Jesus' spirit. Something's being stirred up. It's not just he's feeling weepy, he's feeling angry. He weeps later, but he is angry at death. He is angry at the curse that has fallen upon men and how it hurts to the depth of the core of their being. He hates that because Jesus hates sin. You want to find someone who is so opposed to sin, who hates it with every fiber of his being, it is Jesus. 
He hates sin and he hates the impact God created. Jesus himself created this world and sin has wreaked havoc on his very good creation. Do you not think that the author of creation, the very one who created all things, would be ticked off if something got messed up with it? Don't you hate it when you create something and a little sibling comes along and they break it? It's like, what are you doing? And this is what sin has done, and it broke God's creation. And Jesus hates sin, and he hates the effects of sin. And he knows that in just a few weeks or a few months, he's going to the cross, church, to remedy all of that. So that at the end of the age, the devil doesn't win... God doesn't have to, like, scrap everything. He renews creation. He restores all things. That's what he's going to do. The devil's not going to win. By the cross, by the power of the cross, that is in the future. That's what's going to happen. So here he is. He is ticked off at sin and its curse. But it then tells us that Jesus wept. This is a different Greek word. It, liter- it means to burst into tears. It's not like this heavy, loud sobbing, but there is something that's welling up in him. There's an anger. There's a sorrow. There's this sickness of death and, and get- claiming sorrow and hurt with his friends. And he hates this. So I want to ask you, why does Jesus cry? Is Jesus just a sympathetic crier? Some of you are sympathetic cries. You see someone cry, you have, no re- you have no idea why they're crying, and you start crying. You're a sympathetic crier. Is that what Jesus, I mean, he knows what's going on. Is he just a sympathetic crier? I cannot help but wonder what's going on in Jesus at this point. Here's what we know. We do know that death has touched the life of Jesus. Not just a friend dying but someone even closer than a friend. There is no record of his father Joseph being alive when his ministry starts. Now understand this. By the time Jesus or any Jewish boy reached the age of 13, and he's bar mitzvahed, he would then come under the tutelage of his father or someone else to learn a trade. If he wanted to be a rabbi, he would come under the tutelage of a rabbi. Jesus did not come under the tutelage of a rabbi. He came under the tutelage of his earthly father. And he learned his earthly father's trade. He became a carpenter, possibly a mason, someone who builds things with his hands, either wood or stone. There's some debate there, but for the sake of argument, a carpenter, just like his father. Did his father die when he was 14, just a year later? I'm going to tell you he certainly didn't. There's no way that Jesus could have been proficient at being a carpenter in just one year. How about age 15 or 16 or 17? He still would not have been able to become proficient at his trade. And Jesus is known when he enters Nazareth and he can heal only a few people who have faith there. That's how minimal the faith was. They say, well, isn't this, isn't this man's, isn't Jesus a carpenter? And don't we know his father to be Joseph, a carpenter? You get this idea that his dad is not there. And this is why they're talking about him like this. Jesus was proficient at his trade. Here's why I'm saying that. How many years did did Jesus go to his father's work shed? Day after day, six days a week, 
all day. When he went out on a job, he would go with his father all the while learning and plying this trade so that he would become proficient, maybe even after his father died, supporting the family. Do you know how many years every single day but one a week that Jesus spent with his earthly father? And his earthly father was not this curmudgeon. He was a man who was righteous, but he was a man with compassion. I'm not going to go into demonstrating that in the scriptures, but Joseph was a man of compassion. And Matthew especially points this out. I'm going to tell you, if you've ever had a boss that invested so much in you and had such compassion, you love that guy. You wouldn't want to work for anybody else. I, I think as we read through the Gospels, Jesus and his dad were like this. Fast forward to the day that he buries his dad. And Jesus, though he's the son of God, and he's going to raise at least three people, at least that's recorded in the scriptures, from the dead, the father does not permit him to raise his own dad from the dead. And he's there, and he has to bear the ugly weight of the curse of sin that now takes the life of his own dad. And he can't do anything about it. His hands are tied, so to speak. And he has to bear that sorrow of probably the person next to maybe his mom that he loved most in all this world. And he said goodbye. And they rolled the stone in front of that tomb for good. And that image just was seared into that young man's conscience, Jesus, as that stone is rolled in front of the tomb. And he cannot though he is God, raise its dead from the dead. And now here he is. And as you fast forward, he's standing in front of the tomb. And I can only imagine that he is now thinking about that day in which he saw his own dad laid in a sepulcher with that stone rolled in front. And he could do nothing about it. But it, this is a different day. This is a different day because now he has seen the Father. Apparently he has already prayed. We see here in which Jesus, when he prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. We don't see his prayer anywhere here. Somehow, somewhere before the tomb, Jesus is praying, Father, to show me exactly what I am to do here. And allow this man to rise from the dead. I'm going to guess it happened. Maybe even when he heard that Lazarus was sick. And, and the father said you need to wait. He did only what he saw the father doing. The father waited two days. And so he waited two days. And then he went to raise him from the dead. I can only imagine <clears throat> that as Jesus when he is talking with Mary just outside the village and he weeps, and then when he is standing in front of the tomb and the same emotion grips him, Jesus understands Mary and Martha's pain. He gets it. And Jesus understands your pain. He gets it. In whatever way he waited two days for you, 
so that there was double death to your vision, just as there was double death for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. Jesus waited. And Jesus has a plan. And that plan is to lead you into this abundant life through this tragedy. So he stands at the tomb and he tells them, move the, remove the stone. They do it. And then he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. It's a command. It's not a request. He is speaking to Lazarus. The stone's been rolled away. It's like his voice penetrates through that cave into where Lazarus is sitting. And life comes into it in Lazarus's body. And he wakes up. Remember he said he was going to go to wake him up? And he wakes up, his spirit returns, he's raised from the dead, and he walks out. And he walks out like this. You know why? Because he's still wrapped up in his grave clothes. Please understand how hard that is. Do you know how many pounds of spices Jesus was wrapped up in? 75 pounds. Imagine gaining 75 pounds overnight. And you walk around with 75 extra pounds. And you're bound up. And Jesus says two things. Two commands. Remove the grave clothes. And he says this. Let him go. Remove the grave clothes. That would be anything that is encumbering us that speaks of death. That speaks of the old way of life, the struggles and tragedies that we responded poorly to. You're not to carry those around any longer. You're a new creation in Christ. And since you've known Christ, yes, you have blown it. But those things are in the past. Leave them in the past. Jesus tells you, take off the grave clothes. They, they remind me too much of death. And Jesus is the resurrection in life. He wants to take up residence in your life. And he wants all remembrances of that death gone. Leave them behind. Some examples of grave clothes may be those old habits that you have just regularly gone back to. Don't. Stop fishing. Jesus put a no fishing sign up there. Stop fishing for those old sins. No. Get rid of those grave clothes. How about old ways of thinking that need to change? Ways that you used to think about God, the way you used to think about yourself. When you came to Christ, the old you died. That old you before Christ, that does, he doesn't live. She doesn't live anymore. There's a new nature in you. It's called the new man, the new woman. That is who you are in Christ. Forgiven. Sins permanently gone and washed away. No mark against you ever. This is who you are. You actually, oh my goodness, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And where does Jesus sit? He sits at the right hand of the Father. That is where spiritually you sit. That is who you are in Christ. You're a prince or princess in Christ, in his kingdom. You rule and reign as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you are entitled to any pasture that he leads you into. That is the abundant life. That is yours. As you sit at the right hand of the Father. This is our inheritance. An old way of stinking thinking. Get rid of it. 
and begin to ponder once again just who you are in Christ. And then he says, let him go. Three Greek words, let. That means permit. There's separate, these are three separate words. Permit, allow Lazarus to go. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used to the blind man once he put mud on his eyes and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam for what, to what end? That he might be sent. Go so that you can wash so that you can eventually see and be sent to testify about all that God has done in your life. Lazarus has just now, at that moment, acquired a new mission. Do you know how deep that mission went? In chapter 12, the news, number one, chapter 11, at that resurrection, many people believed. Even the Jews, the enemies of Jesus, believed in Jesus. Lives transformed. In chapter 12, we read that the Jews, not only in chapter 11, they were plotting against Jesus to kill him. Caiaphas, the whole nine yards, I didn't read that to you. You can read it later. Now, in chapter 12, they want to kill Lazarus too. Do you know why? Because so many people are now starting to follow Jesus because of this resurrection. Kill Lazarus. Too many people are wanting to follow. How how do you do that with a clear conscience? I have no idea. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Look at what it says. Some of them believed in Jesus, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. If you were Caiaphas... Wouldn't you have said, oh my goodness, now he's raised someone from the dead? Are you, and you saw it with your own eyes? You don't doubt that person. The, the, devil, the, 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 the devil, Beelzebub raised him from that. You come up with something? And that's what Caiaphas apparently did. Wow. What an opportunity for Caiaphas to surrender his life to Christ, but he doesn't. Consequently, consequently, Many Jews start plotting to kill Lazarus. I'm not telling you that whatever God does through this tragedy that you now begin to walk in and embrace is going to be, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. That mission is only at times going to become harder. This is the nature of what it means to be sent to church. When God does something so powerful in your life, this tragedy will not end in death. It's not going to end in double death. But it's going to bring glory to God because of how he chooses to use it and work in that situation. And now you're going to go and he has given you a testimony. Tell people about it. And when you're persecuted, keep telling more. This is what God has done in our life. Death is not the end. Can you see past it? Can you follow the good shepherd into the pasture and experience the abundant life? You ask, well, what death? What death have you experienced? What appears at the end to you? Can I just be a little bit personal here? What about cancer? What about divorce? What about financial ruin or at least financial setback or a business failure? What about losing your job? What about having a child turn away from the Lord? Can I just tell you, in closing, that when things came down to that mark that I said, I, I'm not going to allow our finances, I'll just I'll stop going to school, whatever I have to do, I'll find a way. 
because school was taking up at least 20 hours a week. Any little thing could have tipped that over, and I would have had to, okay, I'm going to keep my promise, I'm done. God provided two accounts, one with World Outreach Center with CBN, and had to get there at 6 in the morning and cut their parking lot before people got there with their bumpers hanging over the grassed areas. I had to do that before 8. <clears throat> and then an apartment complex, a small apartment complex, but they had chosen to go with another company for the last year. Just got tired of that company, asked me to come back. And I, am, I got two more accounts. And God stepped into it, and he said, Mike, I've got this. Church, can you trust him that he has this for you? Can you trust him that whatever you're facing is not going to end in death? It's not going to end in just tragedy. That God actually has something even better in store. It's great. It's amazing. It's the abundant life. This is what he's wanting you to walk in. And it's going to be hard. Can you just stand with me? Can we trust him tonight in this? That's what I want us to pr our prayer right now to close in. God, we trust you. So right now as you're standing and joining me in prayer, let's trust him, church. Let's, whatever you're facing, let's just trust him. And we do that right now, God. We're trusting you. Whatever we're facing is not going to end in death. Though death may come, that's just not where it ends. And I ask you, Father, step into these situations. Good shepherd, lead us into those pastures that's hard, yes, but it's abundant life. God, I pray for every single person here that they would be willing to submit to you and follow you no matter what the cost. No matter how hard life becomes, you are worthy of our worship and our affection. You are faithful, God. You are worthy of me following you every step of the way of this life. You're worthy. You're good. Your love is unfailing. So, Father, collectively, we're just saying, step into my tragedy. Step into my struggle. This will not end in death. And we trust you for that, God. Bring about something so absolutely amazing, God, that will truly bring glory to you. And that is all we care about. No matter how hard it gets down here, your glory is what we jealously guard. So, Father, just today, deal, deal with our hearts. Thank you that you so care for us as our good shepherd. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.